Hello and welcome to Russians with Attitude. Breaking news. Russia has captured Kiev. A special military operation is going according to plan. April's Fool's Day. Two Ukrainian helicopters entered Russia at a low altitude from Kharkov. They flew over the Russian border unnoticed by air defense systems, but they were visible to the naked eye. Apparently, everyone thought that the helicopters were Russian, so they flew to Belgorod, tens of kilometers away from Kharkov, and struck the oil depot, provoking explosions. Fortunately, as the mayor of Belgorod says, no one was injured. In this episode, we are going to discuss why Ukrainians have so much fighting spirit, the most powerful dehumanization tactics, what was achieved on the Turkish negotiations, and some trivia on the Russian military doctrine. Russian patriots live in the constant fear that our diplomats, our officials will always betray us. So these negotiations in Turkey were not an exception. There was a lot of panic spread on the social media about it. So what did Medinsky actually say? Well, basically Medinsky just quoted what the Ukrainian side uh, Did he make any said. statement of his own? Yeah, he did. He said that it's all negotiable. He said that they would um, tell others about it, carry the proposals upstairs and all friendly. And yeah, we're going to talk about it and stuff like this. Of course, nothing uh, serious. It's basically the Ukrainian demands are a commitment to resolve the status of Crimea and Donbass within 15 years without the use of military force and uh, Donbass still being split up. Basically, the Ukrainian side wants to start the negotiations by the Donbass republics only having the territory they had at the beginning of the war. And a uh, peace treaty is, according to the Ukrainian side, only possible if uh, Russia withdraws all troops from Ukrainian territory. So this is quite obviously unacceptable to the Russian side. The recognition of Crimea and the Donbass republics are like the first, most important demands. There are two funny things about it. Uh, the first one is that uh, Medinsky was born in Ukraine. And yes, he's Arachamia from, he's from Czechos or something. Yeah, uh, and uh, Arachamia, the guy who spoke for the Ukrainian side, I was born in Russia, Sochi. So and he's a Georgian, is, I think, right? Yeah, a Georgian mm. from Russia <laughs> and an Ukrainian met uh, to negotiate. In any case, uh, it looks like the northern front, the troops around Chernigov and Kiev are just rotating because they're, they've been fighting for a month now, so nothing really out of the usual here. And especially uh, since uh, the Ukrainians and the Americans are saying that there is no pullback. Like they're saying that uh, it's just a rotation and redeployment and uh, there is not actually like any kind of uh, retreat there. We were kind of right. Before the war we claimed that I personally said that Putin is not capable of an actual war because he's too much of a KGB uh, guy and um, he always does uh, some kind of special operations. And actually it was kind of right because 
they named it a special military operation and they insist that it's not a war there is no war declared by I mean, any there side there is there are objective reasons for why there is no war declared i mean no one no one declares wars nowadays so yeah yeah, yeah. but uh, in any case they could just not call it special operation <laughs> uh, and the, like they threaten to jail the journalists who say that it's a war Be- there is a real fear of the war term w word so <laughs> I was kind of right that uh, Putin always uh, does special operations, even if it looks like a war. Another thing that I mentioned is that uh, there is no charismatic uh, military leaders, no generals that people actually know about. And it remains true, uh, because it's really rare for an actual war to happen when people don't know the generals. Uh, The Chechen wars, uh, we... All the people who followed the conflict knew about the most prominent generals. Now it's not the case. Uh, like uh, the Minister of Defense, uh, Shaigu, he was absent for a week. It's clearly something went wrong with him. Did you follow Shaigu? Why, why would something be wrong with him? I don't know. It, it sounds like he's ill or something like that. Uh, or I mean, guy probably hasn't slept for a month, so... Well, he was absent for a week uh, from any speaking engagement at all. And uh, when like everyone wondered where is Shaigu, uh, they showed him on a pixelated screen on a Putin's monitor somewhere. So it's very strange uh, what's happening to Shaigu, actually. Uh, Putin really does not uh, want the Russian army to be too powerful and uh, the generals too popular. So another thing that... Uh, I or my wife uh, got uh, (laughs) this morning uh, was an weird SMS. It was written in Russian. So it said something like, uh, Russian friends, we are uh, very concerned of what is happening right now in Russia. How do you feel? Please explain to us uh, what are your opinions on the war. And the number was, I checked on Google, Miami, Florida. Didn't you hear about this? Uh, they announced that it's a huge uh, psyop by the West. No, I have not read it, no. Yeah, it's like, um, well, the West, people in the West, they sincerely believe that Russians don't know that there is a war going on, that Putin is hiding the war from them. Huh. So, and they are sending these mass uh, SMS to Russia Basically to tell people like, hey, uh, your government is lying to you. There is actually a war going on (laughs) and stuff like this. And uh, yes, I've talked to several people already who got these SMS. It seems to be really a mass thing from America, from Germany, from Britain. So it's I don't know if it's really centrally coordinated or if it's just like uh, like people think that they are doing something by sending these SMS. I don't know. But yeah, it's uh, definitely happening, and I still find it extremely funny. It's kind of pointless also. Uh, Another thing that I noticed uh, that, uh, well, it's not new. Uh, It's like from the beginning of this conflict, uh, Ukrainians started calling Russians orcs. Like Russian Mm -hmm. uh, troops, uh, Donbass troops, Donbass civilians, Russian civilians. All of them are now orcs. I think I noticed uh, this term 
back in the day, like back, back in the 2014, but now it's like a semi-official term for mm-hmm. the Russians, right? Because uh, Ukrainian like commanders, everyone is using it. Uh, that's very interesting. Th- that's a very powerful way of dehumanizing your uh, enemies, of course. And well, we already see the outcome of this uh, by torturing the prisoners of war um, because they're dehumanized thoroughly. Uh, do you think it will get worse because of it? I mean, it is already pretty bad. The dehumanization rhetoric is not new. It has been, I mean, you probably remember how um, they were joking after uh, Odessa in 2014, um, how Ukrainian restaurants uh, made like Odessa barbecue dishes and stuff like this. So it's really not new, this complete genocidal Hutu tier dehumanization. So, but yes, it's pretty bad. You also had like people on federal TV in Ukraine calling for the murder of Russian children, for uh, assassinations of the families of Russian soldiers, for mutilating POWs. It's all really bad. I think it's mostly fear and frustration because they report, you know how they report, that they are winning, that they are at the gates of Moscow, that they are close to capturing Belgorod right now and everything. But I think most of them at some level understand that this is not what's actually happening. And this leads to a lot of cognitive dissonance and fear and frustration um, and despair and they just slash out in the ways they have. Like, you have the Ukrainian troops in Donbass, they are being cut off. They are being surrounded, they are getting low on supplies, on ammunition, and they waste the artillery shells they have on firing at random civilian homes in Donetsk. So this is not rational military behavior. This is just angry lashing out. Well, it is rational if you believe that Donbas civilians and Russian troops alike are both orcs and you are some elvish army defending against the orcs. Uh, By the way, this guy who knifed the POW, Russian Mm -hmm. POW, the other day, uh, I checked his social media accounts and he was a gastarbeiter in Russia who did some home improvements in Moscow. Naturally, he only spoke uh, Russian... Uh, and doesn't look like an insane warrior type. He's like 40 years old. Uh, most of his life he was uh, working manual jobs in Moscow. And all of that uh, did not stop him from doing it. They don't think that, well, getting caught on the camera, your face on it, that they're going to get uh, killed. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, that's also part of the cognitive dissonance because they, they say that... Russians are like genocidal, a genocidal horde, but they are not afraid of them because they know that yeah. there won't be actual atrocities. Like people in like uh, in Kherson and Melitopol, you have like uh, like fifty or a hundred uh, Ukrainian nationalists who protest against the Russian troops and wave flags and scream in the faces of soldiers and pound their fists on tanks. And they do this because they know that they are not going to get gunned down. 
Russians uh, believe that uh, our officials are corrupt and they will betray the Russian cause any time they get, right? And Ukrainians being very much acquainted with uh, Russian culture also know that or think that Russian officials are corrupt and they will never do an actual like genocide against Ukrainians. We are very similar in that regard, in the absolute distrust of uh, Russian officials and their like patriotic feelings. But, I mean, I don't know how much stock I would put in these negotiations at all. Medinsky is some disgraced alcoholic from the Ministry of Culture. Why is he an alcoholic? Have you seen videos of him? He no. he, all, <laughs> he he very all, he looks like he's drunk most of the time, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And like that Akahamia dude, I don't know what his official position is, but, but he looks like a bum. Like he's dressed in a t-shirt and, and, and unshaven and he has his phone on the table. Like these are not serious diplomatic negotiations. No, he looks like a Silicon Valley startup or something <laughs> like that. I think he just wants to look the part. So that's why. Actually, he was an IT guy, Rahamia, before the Zelensky Mm-hmm. Uh, took office. So, yeah, uh, Zelensky's team is KVN clowns. <laughs> it's very interesting, the KVN cabal, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because even in Russia and Ukraine, they're very powerful. And I like the Galkovsky episode uh, on KVN. KVN being the only secret society, right? Uh, <laughs> allowed in Soviet Union. And there is something to it, uh, really. Yeah, this is, this is absolutely true. I mean, it's... Uh, in the Soviet Union, it was kind of uh, an alternative path uh, for the like not going the uh, KPSS route, but instead the KVN. It's true. I mean, I guess we should explain what KVN is briefly to our listeners. Club of the funny and находчивые. Uh, club of the funny and inventive. I think mm-hmm. this is how they translate it usually. Right, so uh, the club of the funny and inventive um, was, uh, I think it was uh, created in Khrushchev's time. It was copied uh, from some comedy Czech uh, TV program. It's like a student uh, championship, uh, what uh, university is funnier. Very weird organization actually, because it penetrates bodies of every university in Russia and mm-hmm. Ukraine and Belarus and maybe uh, some Caucasian and trans-Caucasian nations, those people who manage to get through the KVN ladder either become very prominent uh, like entertainers or in Ukrainian case they got the power over the whole country. And uh, the guy who runs uh, KVN in Russia is also very creepy, right? Uh, what's his name? Maslikov. 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 He, is, he was the head of KVN for like 60 years. <laughs> he is, looks like some Masonic uh, character. And yeah, that's uh, basically the, the closest uh, analog uh, to Masonic Lodge in Russia and post-Soviet <laughs> states. Well, uh, also another news, uh, ruble gaining a lot. It's around 100 right now. So it, it was uh, up to 150, and now it's back to 100. Uh, one euro is right now 93, and one dollar is like 84. Yeah, those are official figures, but uh, they are not realistic, actually. They are a bit theoretical, yes. 
Yeah, because banks uh, will not sell you dollars for this amount of rubles, not yes. at all. So yeah, it's uh, theoretical, but it uh, seems to be stabilizing. You, you mentioned that uh, Americans and Germans and British uh, are sending those SMSs uh, to Russians to warn that uh, there is a war. But it has some truth to it, because be without social media and the Internet, I will probably not know that there is a war. In everyday life, uh, there is nothing indicative of it, in my experience, mm. other than some price hikes and uh, stuff like mm -hmm. that. But they were happening from COVID era. Obvious that they have been preparing economically for this for a long time, also using the occasion to do some more global economic things like with the gas payments in rubles it, i don't think anyone as of yet uh, said that they would be paying in rubles most have said that they won't um, well, it's easy to talk now but uh, let's uh, like wait until winter yeah um, i mean it's not even a matter of winter because gas is not only used for heating it's used in sure. industry and all this i mean if uh, gas supply stops right now then all western or not all but a lot of western european industry just shuts down the factories can't run without gas and well maybe um, they hope that uh, americans will supply the shale oil and stuff that like doesn't that. work the, it doesn't work like this um, the american lng gas it has to be there, there is special infrastructure needed to transport it and yeah. uh, there are they need special lng terminals to get those and those don't exist yet so it would take at least like a year or so to set the infrastructure up and probably more there is no realistic way to avoid getting russian gas for europe like norwegian production is just too little the americans um there is no infrastructure for this right now to set this up very bad economically to rely on ONG from America, but I think like there are three options basically for how this is gonna end up. Um, first one is that Europe backs down and starts paying in rubles. Uh, second option is that they negotiate and that they can continue paying in like euros uh, in exchange for lifting sanctions some or many i don't know and the third option is that they're gonna do some trickery and uh, like come up with some scheme about how they will i don't know like algeria will buy the gas for rubles and then europe will buy the gas from algeria at the markup like these schemes happen constantly like with ukraine uh, they were getting out oil from libya while it was being bombed to hell so these uh, Mm -hmm. these these things are a lot of brain power is being used to address these things so i think they will come up with something it will be extremely expensive for europe in any case that's unavoidable but i don't think that there will be a shutdown of gas to europe i mean it's possible but i don't think that um like the european elites will allow this because it would be just too devastating to their economy well, it just means that uh, in the long run, the Europe will not stand a chance against the American order, basically. They will not be such a challenge for the Americans as they were 
And uh, that's interesting because of, uh, because Galkovsky and a lot of conspiracy guys uh, in Russia are obsessed with the idea of wise uh, European aristocracy, <laughs> right? So that uh, everything they do uh, will be in their benefit and they're schooling the little kids that are Russians and Americans. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't really look like it. It doesn't <laughs> look like European aristocracy is in control or whatever. No, not at all. I mean, they probably are in control of something, but um, the political elites are, seem not very smart in Europe. Not at all. I wonder what was the point of uh, appointing Liz Truss foreign secretary in late 2021? What's uh, the deal here? Because it doesn't look like a natural turn of events because the Brits uh, certainly we're preparing for something and uh, i don't know i don't know this dress just seems like a not very intelligent person to me she reminds me of jen psaki yeah exactly uh, actually jen psaki is not that uh, discussed in i think in america but in russia everyone knows jen psaki because mm, uh, they she did. was i mean i mean psaki has become um like a part of political discourse in america since oh. she became, because she's a White House press secretary under Biden. So the yeah. Republicans now have started talking about her since 2020. But yes, Russians, of course, we know her since... Uh, For eight was, years, uh, right? Yes. She uh, she has been a total lol cow for the Russian public. Mm -hmm. And, uh, like, it's intentional, right? Uh, Americans appoint a lol cow, Jen Psaki, <laughs> and uh, Brits are doing the same with Liz Truss. Uh, this, they're pacifying the Russian populace that, yeah, we're actually that dumb. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It seems sketchy, that's all. Some things point to the fact that, that they are this stupid. The Americans are threatening China and India, like openly threatening them with sanctions if they don't sanction Russia. That, that doesn't seem like very smart to me. So I don't know, diplomacy is kind of uh, a shit show right now everywhere. Russians uh, who live abroad, I think, will suffer uh, the Ukrainian attacks powered by the Western governments and um, being like fired for their opinions and stuff like that. Yeah, I think um, Russians abroad don't feel very comfortable right now. Um, but since they are Russians, I think the, the, the most common reaction to this is just um, spite and defiance. And, and um, yeah, of course, they are like demoralized uh, liberal urban elites, like, I don't know, IT guys or whatever, um, who are probably just like hurt and sad because of everything that's happening but i think most um are just like ah uh, yeah you're gonna attack me for being russian fuck you and <laughs> i think that's the most common stance for like russians uh, abroad right now because their parents or they themselves if they migrated um, they seeked a more comfortable life but mm -hmm. um, I think it will change, basically, because Russia in the 90s and the West in the 90s was really a paradise for Russian mm -hmm. migrants. It seemed that way. And now it's really, it really isn't, mm -hmm. especially in Europe. But uh, the elites, like Chubais, I think we haven't mentioned it, actually, that Anatoly Chubais mm -hmm. have left the country. And that's really huge. 
Yeah, he was and, everything uh, in the 80s. Yeah, he was, uh, of the, he was head of the presidential administration under Yeltsin. Uh, he was uh, vice prime minister, I think. Um, so yeah, he was uh, a lot of things. He was very important in the 90s, one of, one of Yeltsin's top guys. Yeah, the uh, reformers like uh, mm-hmm. Gaidar from the Gaidar team and uh, Chubais. The really shock therapy guys. He was yeah. also on the um, on the board of uh, J.B. Morgan, I believe, or still is. Mm-hmm. So Chubais is uh, one of the uh, exceptions uh, that survived Putin's regime, and <laughs> because uh, he has uh, that much of a high status, mm-hmm. and now he left the country and that's a huge relief for the russians because chubais is probably the most hated figure in russian politics yeah people really absolutely. did not uh, understand why putin supposedly patriotic putin does not punish fire or whatever anatoly chubais who mm-hmm. russians uh, called rusty tolik <laughs> because he's ginger he doesn't have a soul what other popular figures, uh, characters from the Russian liberal scene have left the country? Oh man, a lot of them. I mean, most, like most of the liberal Twitter locals, I think have left. Um, like really a lot of people, I can't do, like basically every, you know, the Telegram channel uh, about uh, liberal locals and basically most of the people who are <laughs> regularly <laughs> featured there are now sitting somewhere in Georgia or Armenia or Israel. Yeah, all the absolutely rotten, the actual feel for the nation has left. That's very different from the white immigrants, right, and the philosophical ship of whatever happened a century ago. That's uh, the, all the worst people have left the country. It's m- probably the most optimistic thing that uh, happened. Connected to the fact that uh, the West has basically completely demolished its own propaganda networks in Russia. Like with all of them, like Radio Free Europe and BBC and stuff like this, they're all putting out of Russia. And uh, they're taking their agents with them, basically. Yeah, but uh, actually like, uh, places like McDonald's are still working because uh, they were under franchising and they just mm-hmm. refused to close and it was just um, nonsense news about McDonald's and businesses like that uh, closing down in Russia. Like insane people went to McDonald's to have their last borg- burger every single day <laughs> until mm-hmm. they figured out that it's not actually closing down. What else? What's about uh, the war prospects? What do you think? Um, did you see the Scott Ritter thread on Big Arrow War? Like he's a, I don't know if you know him, he's like a, he used to be an intelligence officer in the United States Marine Corps. Uh, he was a weapons inspector for the United Nations in Iraq and stuff. And he used to be a specialist on the Soviet Union in the Cold War like before the 90s and um, he got in some legal trouble like he was I think uh, like some pedo stuff or something like this um, mm. like I think he was caught uh, fl- flirting with a federal agent who pretended to be a 16 year old girl 
something like this. So <laughs> <laughs> not very. But his uh, military analytics credentials, I think, are not under question, aside from his moral character. And uh, he, he's, n and I think since he uh, became disgraced within America, he started. Uh, he's now writing for Russia Today and stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, he wrote a thread on overall Russian strategy, basically um, explaining how the point of uh, the Northern Front to um, just pin Ukrainian troops in place because uh, they were at a huge numbers advantage and there were only like, I don't know, 140, 150, 200,000 Russians and um, like two or three times that number in Ukrainians. So classic uh, attritional conflict wasn't an option and it had to be maneuver warfare. And the maneuver warfare was basically to make sure that the bulk of Ukrainian troops cannot move around and uh, cannot reinforce the Donbass. So, I mean, it was, v we said this very early on that this is what was happening in Odessa, that uh, there will not be a landing there anytime soon and they're just uh, like harassing them a bit and keeping the city under threat because they have a lot of troops there uh, just so they stay away from the front lines and I think uh, Scott Ritter says that the whole key of operation was the same thing basically. It's just there are like three uh, big concentrations of Ukrainian forces, uh, Donbass, Odessa Nikolaev and uh, Kiev Kharkov. And basically the Odessa Nikolaev and the Kiev Kharkov troops are being kept in place and can't move. And this was all just a strategic operation for the encirclement of the Donbass group, which is going to happen now since uh, the operational goals have been mostly achieved on those fronts. And before anything else, uh, now they will move troops to uh, after Mariupol is completely secured. I mean, Mariupol is basically military operations have mostly ceased in Mariupol. It's now not so much a major battle as like just cleanup, counterinsurgency, which is, uh, doesn't require as many troops. Uh, so a lot of forces, a lot of Russian forces will be freed now and they will move to Donbass to finish the big cauldron that everyone has been talking about for months. Big hero war sounds like a typical chess strategy. It makes I mean, sense. it's basically the same thing Scott Ritter also points us out. It's the same thing that the Americans did during Operation Desert Storm, where mm -hmm. uh, they had uh, forces on the Kuwaiti-Saudi border, and uh, they pinned a lot of uh, Iraqi troops there, so they couldn't attack the uh, main U.S. troops in the West. So it's uh, more or less the very similar strategy, and. Uh, yeah, it's. I mean, it's. Uh, it was kind of obvious around. I think day day eight, nine, ten, maybe, that there will be no attempt to take Kiev by storm. I think many people maybe expected this in the first week. Uh, I did too, but I think it's around somewhere in the middle of week two. It became clear that there will be. No, uh, like, they won't be storming Kiev. 
and uh, so the operation obviously had another goal and I think it's quite likely that uh, Scott Ritter is right and the main goal of the Kiev offensive was just to pin a lot of Ukrainian troops in the, uh, away from Donbass. Well, in the beginning of the war, we always compared uh, this conflict to the Iraq war. And uh, we mentioned that um, it was taken, Baghdad was taken in a month. So there is no real worry about the speed of the operation. But now it, it's more than a month. And if uh, Russians actually don't want to capture Kiev, what's the objective for them? Because it's not on the schedule of <laughs> Iraq war anymore. From what I've heard, there were basically in the Russian MOD, there were two scenarios. Oh, I mean, of course, a lot more, but two main scenarios for how this war was gonna uh, go. The first one was, let's call it Plan A, uh, was basically the 2014 scenario, right? Like, just rush in, walk through the country and uh, occupy Kiev and they surrender. This is what would have happened in 2014. But uh, it's from what I hear from people who have some inside info. Uh, on the second day, Russian command realized that plan A wasn't going to happen. And they switched to plan B. So the long war. Uh, the, from, this is not like verified confirmed information. But from what I hear from people who have usually very good information uh, is that as far as I understand the original like plan A was supposed to take six weeks and uh, the timetable for plan B is uh, a lot longer and it's with cleanup operations after the main military operations so like counterinsurgency, counterterror uh, the timetable is around uh, six months for Plan B. I don't know if that is really true, but that's what I've heard from people close to the source. So I think it's possible. I also think that there are political ramifications to this. Like um, Plan A would have uh, probably not included the annexation of any Ukrainian territory. And it's uh, like if they took Kiev fast, they probably would have just uh, installed some pro-Russian government and left it alone. Like this is the neutral, friendly, anti-fascist Ukraine that the Kremlin has been talking about for 20 years. Uh, and Plan B all has different political ramifications because by now you have things like um, pro-Russian administrations being created in Kherson and Militopol. Um, they are introducing the ruble on Russian-controlled territory and it does look a lot like there will be annexations happening or like maybe independent people's republics like the Donbass things. I mean, we talked about this uh, in the Many Futures of Ukraine episode. Um, I've also seen people like talk about how it's actually good that they are doing Plan B because Plan A would have been like basically just a return to the Yanukovych status quo. And uh, now it looks like the Ukrainian state is gonna get dismantled. Well, obviously that Zelensky will never agree to anything of that because he's safely 
uh, in his bunker in Poland or wherever in Germany. So uh, how will Russia possibly force Ukrainian side to stop? Uh, I mean, it depends. It's it's really hard to predict how an army is going to behave. Um, I think many expected that the Ukrainian army would behave like it would have in 2014 with mass surrenders and stuff, but those aren't happening. Um, at the scale that was expected, there are, of course, a lot of surrenders, but not as many as... Uh, like, those are just tactical and not ideological. Um, so, yeah, I think it depends on uh, whether there will still be uh, a Ukrainian army as a strategic force after the main operations in Donbass are concluded. Like, it all depends on how the rest of the Ukrainian armed forces are going to react to the, the defeat in Donbass. And how the defeat is going to play out. Because there is, I think, a difference. Um, like, if they get encircled, they can try to break out and take super heavy losses. They can just all surrender. Uh, they can go, like, uh, full terrorist. Like uh, Azov in Mariupol. Or they can, like, just all get destroyed. Uh, let's just uh, imagine that Zelensky agrees uh, to make an order for Ukrainian soldiers to lay down their arms and uh, agree to the terms that, like, Novorossiya will be independent. The army will not listen to him at all, because uh, there is actually little respect for Zelensky. Despite all the Western popularity of Zelensky, uh, the actual, like, Azov guys, they never respected him. Well, for one thing, because he's Jewish, uh, and also they call him uh, Ziliboba or Zilioni. Uh, it's uh, well, I read some Telegram channels of Ukrainian soldiers somewhere in Donbas, and they mm -hmm. really despise the guy. So they tolerate him until he, by their account, uh, makes some treasonous uh, deal with the Russians. So they will never really lay down their arms uh, if they are not actually destroyed or severely attritioned, basically. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, it uh, became clear that Kiev has no control over what the armed forces do when they agreed to humanitarian corridors in Mariupol and stuff like this, and uh, the local soldiers just didn't do it. Also, I'm soon gonna go visit a refugee camp and uh, talk to some of the Ukrainian refugees there. I know uh, a friend of mine, uh, he works with refugees and he has told some stories of and it's completely unhinged. Uh, like, like, I don't know if I should even tell those stories because no one will believe them and they just say it's Russian propaganda. No, please do. Um, so, there is uh, one guy who is like a super Ukrainian nationalist, um, but he's actually in like like military age, so uh, he probably had to bribe border guards to even get out of Ukraine. Um, but he's like super suave Ukrainian. And um, then a few days after he arrived in Europe, he found out that his sister was shot by Ukrainian territorial defense forces in Kiev when she was trying to leave the city. Like, they just opened fire on the car for no reason. And, uh, yeah, he became a bit quieter in his Ukrainian nationalism after that. 
And the second story is um, a family uh, from near Kharkov, from the Kharkov suburbs. They also tried to leave. And uh, when they on the road, they were captured by some armed gang, like probably like some Ukrainian nationalists. It's unclear who they were. They were not regular army, just a bunch of nationalists with Kalashnikovs. And they um, abducted the family, basically, and put them in a basement in some village near Kharkiv and told them that they would execute them for betraying the country by leaving Kharkiv, which is treason, apparently. And uh, while they were sitting in the basement, um, Russian troops captured the village. And they uh, killed all the nationalists and uh, then helped them evacuate. And uh, this woman, this family, she has been telling this story to her fellow Ukrainian refugees. And they don't believe her. They say that she's lying and that she's a Russian agent. Yeah, naturally. And it's, it's really this, uh, I mean, I really want to talk to these people in person as well. I'm interested in that. I mean, of course, I'm going to also help like with translations and stuff. Do you want to shoot uh, some videos? Uh, maybe, maybe. I don't know if anyone will be up for this. I mean, people would be rightfully scared of saying these things. Well, yeah. Video. Maybe blur with their faces, something like that. I'll see. Uh, I'm, I'll see what I can do. But I'm definitely going to try to get some stories mm. and help these people. I mean, like most of these people, of course, they aren't like crazy Ukrainian nationalists and war criminals. They're just regular people. There is no reason not to help them. Um, but some of them, yeah, they're, they're really super strange. Like, as I said, uh, uh, I know a guy who works with refugees and uh, he was like uh, at a refugee camp and uh, trying to help also a Ukrainian family. And... Uh, like they were speaking Russian to each other, mm -hmm. but uh, when like people from the I think it was the Red Cross or some other social organization, uh, like they sent a translator who was Russian, uh, one Russian and one I think uh, a Lithuanian, who also spoke Russian, and um, to translate to help them with translation stuff. And the Ukrainian family they they demanded uh, a translator from Ukrainian. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to speak in Russian to anyone, despite they, that Russian was their everyday language that they spoke to each other. Well, yeah, the most hardcore liberals in Belize refuse to talk in Russian. Uh, they speak English mm -hmm. to not <laughs> get beat up by Georgian nationalists or whatever. And yeah, it's crazy, but it's very... I don't think it will stick, really, and it will somehow hurt the Russian culture or anything like that. I think the general interest in the conflict is waning in the West. Yeah, I've noticed and that too. It's uh, all like Chris Rock <laughs> or uh, <laughs> Bill Smith and something like that. So if I mean, it's been a month and the average Western person doesn't have the patience or concentration to be able to focus on a topic for this long. 
sure, they soon gonna forget about all of this because I am genuinely convinced that uh, most of the people in the world think uh, that uh, Russia is a communist country. It uh, really is the case. That's why we get a lot of tankies supporting us because they really have no reason to do that. Yeah, <laughs> that was. I mean, uh, I like I I sparked out a bit uh, about World War One and stuff like this on uh, Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> and I had like like hundreds of quote tweets by by angry communists who felt like like we betrayed them because oh, we yeah. are not communists like it's super weird yeah the soviet brand for all its faults uh, was actually very powerful and mm. putlinism whatever will not replace it for the foreseeable future sadly so uh, well yeah it was your favorite communist podcast <laughs> russians with attitude see you soon Or another thing I wanted to mention is uh, the kind of a branding thing, like the use of um, laser-guided precision artillery and missiles is becoming something like a brand for the Russian military. Like if you just use the mainstream perception, then the main brand of the U.S. Army is um, like Marines, of course, And uh, like those uh, drones that bomb Mary, uh, like weddings and stuff. And the main brand for the Russian army is becoming like the private military companies, the Chechens, and the Kaliber and Iskander missiles that just come out of nowhere and um, yeah, hit their targets very precisely. Like the uh, Krasnopol precision artillery is uh, really becoming one of the main assets of the Russian forces in Ukraine. This is becoming obvious. Uh, the Americans have an equivalent, I believe, Copperhead, uh, but they don't use it that much, I think. So that's quite interesting. 